family? Oh, come on. Come on. <laughs> Thank you. We know how this goes, y'all. My name is Justin. I'm on staff here at Cross Point. And uh, before we dismiss the children to CPK and begin to study God's Word this morning, I want to give a bit of a disclaimer. Um, the content of our text contains stronger than normal language, concepts, uh, and themes. If you read the text before coming here this morning or you're familiar with the story of uh, Hosea, you know that the Bible doesn't mince any of its words. So I want to give you parents another chance uh, to, to sign your kids up for CPK. Uh, they, they, they've already been uh, briefed, so they know to expect, you know, maybe uh, a couple of last-minute guests. Um, but uh, if not, cool. Just you might have a conversation in front of you when you get home. That's all I'm saying. Your decision. Anyway, we good? God, Lord, have mercy on me as you refuse to encourage me this morning. You ready to study your Bibles? Oh, that's what I'm talking about, Steve. You got me. All right. We're going to be in the book of Hosea chapter 3. That's where we'll start this morning. And as you get there, I want to sort of lay uh, a, a backdrop, uh, a paint a picture for where we've been at in the last few weeks. We began this series studying the works of the minor prophets. Uh, now, don't be confused. They're not called minor because uh, uh, their message is less of value than the major prophets. It's, it's strictly off the length of their books. But our focus, our lens through which we are studying these brothers is around the idea of returning to something. Each minor prophet book carries this underscore, this musical background, uh, if you would, and all the drama that we read that is inciting us, the readers, to move actively towards God in a particular way. You're not with me yet, so I'll try it this way. Me and my kids, we go walking pretty regularly throughout the week. Uh, we have a dog. She's got a lot of energy, so we got to expel that energy before she chews the house up. So, so we, we go walking pretty regularly, but my oldest, he, he likes to test his autonomy. He, he likes to be a big boy. You know what I'm saying? He wants to see how far he can get without me sort of being present around there. Well, one day we're walking and the, there's sort of a path in our neighborhood that kind of waves and wiggles. And so he was out of my line of sight, out of my presence, out of my ability to protect him were something to happen. And so what happened was, is I couldn't see him. He couldn't see me. But what I did see was a car with tinted windows driving slowly, following him all the way that he went. Now, I am not that kind of parent. I'm not really scared of every nook and cranny. But this particular day, I felt fearful. So what did I do? I called him to return to me. That is what is in front of us as we study the minor prophets. Some of you 
are in your lives right now trying to test your own autonomy, trying to test the limits of your freedom. Uh, You're trying to live in such a way where you are not living in the presence of God daily. And what happens is, is that it's okay until it isn't. You may not see the danger in front of you, but God does, and he's calling you to return, to come back into family, to come back into his presence, to come back into his word, to come back to surrender. Our text this morning is no different. Israel, if you remember the story, if you know the history, is about to see its fall sometime. And Hosea's words to Israel is that of judgment and of grace. But God wants this message to soak deeply into Hosea. He doesn't just want Hosea to be a vessel for his words. He wants Hosea to be transformed by it. In other words, God is not merely concerned for Hosea's ability to speak into Israel's cultural moment. No, God doesn't just want you to know the truth. He's not even so concerned about your ability to proclaim the truth. God wants you to experience it, to live it. The word we like to use around here is be transformed by it. And that is what he's doing with Hosea this morning. We have a task ahead of us. We we have to get uh, 14 chapters down in about like 40-ish minutes. Uh, To put that in context, the the, the most talented and spiritually empowered preacher who ever lived is Charles Spurgeon. He preached 40-something sermons on the book of Hosea. So me getting all of this down in one, it ain't going to happen. So here's what I need you to know. Chapters 4 through 14 are excerpts from Hosea's sermons to Israel, but chapters 1 through 3 are so powerful and personal that I think, uh, and some scholars believe as well, that if you can understand the point of chapters one through three, then you can understand the point of the book. Some scholars have called chapter three the greatest chapter in all the Bible. Some scholars call the story that takes place in chapters one through three the second greatest story ever told in the Bible, the first obviously being the gospel. So that's what we're going to try and do. We're going to try and understand chapters one through three. I want to, for you type A'ers, I want to give you my big idea up front. I'm going to read a passage out of chapter three. We're going to pray, and then we're sort of going to break this thing down as best we could. Good? Oh, Lord, send some angels. Among the people who will speak back to the preacher this morning. Here's my big idea for you, and it should be, I'm using slides this time. I've I've progressed. You see what I'm saying? I'm getting better at this. Here's my big idea for you. Our exhaustive unfaithfulness is not enough to exhaust God's redeeming love that exhausts the human ability to understand. Our exhaustive unfaithfulness is not enough to exhaust God's redeeming love that exhausts the human ability to understand. In other words, we don't possess the power to fully understand the perseverance of God's grace towards our unfaithfulness to him. 
what God is going to argue through Hosea is that of all the images we have about our relationship with him, sheep to shepherd, servant to king, child to father, sick to healer, needy to giver, of all the imagery we have, none of them exhaust the depth of the relationship we have with him. The closest we can come to understanding, and I want you to hear me to say closest, not principal, not chief among, not exclusive to, but the closest we can come to understanding our relationship to him is through a marriage, bride to groom. God wants a relationship with us so intensely personal, so intimate, so relationally binding and enduring that you can't understand him unless you understand him as your husband. I want to talk to you from that point this morning. Our exhaustive unfaithfulness is not enough to exhaust God's redeeming love that exhausts the human ability to understand. God help us understand it this morning. Hosea chapter 3 verses 1 through 5 is where we'll read. So if you would stand for the reading of God's word and then would you pray for me as I pray for you as together we hear from the Lord this morning. Hosea 3, starting in verse 1. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lech of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household of gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. May it challenge us, correct us, encourage us, lift our heads. May we see ourselves as your bride and you as our groom. May we delight in your pursuit of us and be enchanted by the wonders of your ways. May you gift us with a spiritual healing that mends our sinfulness and brings us home to you. God, would you gift me with clarity of speech and thought as the preacher and would you gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite feelings in the world is when you begin a book or a movie and you, you don't really know what you're getting into. 
And so you come in with a bit of reservation, a bit of like, uh, just, just you, you, you're kind of figuring this thing out. Maybe you have cautious optimism about, you know, if what you're going to watch or read uh, is going to be worth the time you put in to read it or to watch it. And so what happens is, is you come in with all this skepticism, some, 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 some curious optimism maybe, or, or just some reservation, and then what happens is, is the opening scene blows you away. It hooks you from the very beginning. It, it's, it's literally perfect. In just a short moment, everything you're going to experience throughout this work is laid before you. This, this opening scene, it sets the tone, it captures the mood, it introduces the concept and theme and uh, play in, 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 a, in, in a succinct and captivating way. All the intrigue and curiosity is there. You're hooked. That is what the opening verses of the book of Hosea are. So turn back a page and meet me there. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. It reads like this. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Barry, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So, all right. We got God talking to this guy, Hosea, and we also have the time period. This is 30 years, roughly 30 years before Israel's destruction at the hands of Assyria. And so Hosea is a prophet. Someone who God talks to and then he talks to the people on behalf of God. And he's, he's sort of running, his, uh, uh, running his, his, his lane at the same time as Amos, who if we remember Pastor Steve's sermon from a couple weeks ago, we remember the powerful, captivating message of, of Amos. But Hosea's case is utterly unique. God is not just communicating to Hosea. He, what he wants him to say, he's also calling Hosea to live, to experience it. God makes Hosea live the tragedy of Israel's unfaithfulness by marrying a woman battling a particular kind of addiction. So if you look at verse 2, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. I want you for just one second to close your eyes right now and think how you would feel. You're still looking at me. Think how you see. This is the problem we have. I tell you to do something, you don't do it. Close your eyes for just one second and think to yourself how you would feel if God told this to you. You have been tasked by God to put yourself in the position of continually cheated on. Not once, not twice, not three times. A lifestyle of unfaithfulness. You can look at me now. There we go. Here's the misconception we often hear in this story. Gomer is not a prostitute. Not yet. That's the common understanding, but that's not what the text says here. No, Gomer is just addicted to doing what should only be done between a husband and a wife. And her addiction has caused her to never be married. Men they know she's been around the block. 
They know. Why would I commit to someone who's going to gift me the blessings of commitment without the commitment? That's a word for somebody. And she's not, notice the language, she's not using her addiction as a way to make money. She's just known for her flings. Everyone knows her. And God tells Hosea, hey man, you're a bachelor, you got a good life, you're doing okay, you've been a faithful prophet, that's the girl for you. The audacity. The audacity. You know what else might be happening in this moment right now for you and I as we put ourselves in Hosea's shoes? Our self-righteousness has flared up. Some of you might be thinking to yourself, I would never. In other words, I'm too good to be with somebody like that. You're already villainizing Gomer. Where's her self-respect? Where's her dignity? All we're really doing is saying, my sin ain't as messy as hers. Nevertheless, it is audacious for God to ask a prophet to marry a woman like this. That's the other thing, right? Why, would, why, why not ask Hosea to care for her? Why not ask Hosea to preach to her? Why not ask Hosea to deliver her from her cravings? No, that's not what God asks him to do. God says, marry her. Isn't that interesting? For a second, it would seem as though God is using marriage trivially. Just slapping it on something that's built to fail anyway. It could appear to you that Marriage is merely just a decision between two consenting adults. I want to argue to you, family, that what God is doing here is quite the opposite. Could it be that the institution of marriage was designed, cultivated, formed, intended to withstand more than we think or could possibly believe? Could it be that we might be more leaned into our marriages, more willing to bear, and more steadfast in our marriages if we actually believed that God has made this institution to be both the greatest burden and the greatest gift. What if marriage was less so, but certainly not absent, less so viewed, as the culmination of your decisions rather than God has orchestrated this union for each other's good, for your children's good, for your extended family's good, for your neighborhood's good, for your city's good. What if marriage was more than you thought it was, stronger than you thought it was, more purposeful, than you thought it was? What if your marriage was a testimony told for generations to come? Now, don't get me wrong, as I fidget with this mic. Don't get me wrong. I believe truly and wholly that God understands divorce. I know firsthand from my own testimony that marriages can be volatile, traumatic, 
even dangerous. But all I'm saying, church, is that what if our marriages were built better than you thought they were? What if your union was made to endure more than you think you're willing to put up with? What if marriage was made to be a mirror for something deeper? I love talking to older couples who, you know what I'm talking about. They've been faithfully married longer than you thought two people could even coexist. I love talking to them. They're just a happy marriage. They ran the race, both faithful, you know, had ups and downs, but nothing really too remarkable, just, just persistent, constant. I guess consistent is the word I was looking for. Right? You know them. I, I know them. It's beautiful to hear that story. It, it, it gives you hope that that might be your story. You know what I love more than that? The same people who've been together for that long, and they done been through the fire with each other. Interpersonal strife. Marriages that divorce was absolutely on the table multiple times. Marriages that it was probably better for them to be separated for some time than together. Marriages that withstood the fire. But because of their love for each other, today they're here. Today they've crossed the finish line. Today they've made it faithful and true. I love those stories. Faithful, fortified pursuing each other. I believe that the point God is making through Hosea is that your marriage is a mirror reflecting your marriage with God. Y'all look sleepy. Hosea was tasked to marry Gomer so that Hosea could experience what God was experiencing. God tells Hosea, just as you were married to an unfaithful bride, so am I. Church, before you start to believe that you're a better spouse than Gomer, because you sin differently, let me just remind you that in God's economy, you're either faithfully married to God or you're Gomer. And none of us are faithfully married to God. I didn't say you weren't married to God. I said you weren't faithfully married to God. That's what I'm talking about. God not only told Hosea to marry Gomer, What else did he tell Hosea to do? God tells Hosea to have Gomer's children. Notice the language there. Have her children. Gomer is going to have three children. And God wants Hosea to have them, raise them, because he is going to use them as prophetic pronouncements for how how he will bring judgment to Israel. This is our second point. So the first child is born in chapter 1, verse 3, and God tells Hosea to name him Jezreel. And God gives Hosea the reason. He says, call him Jezreel because soon Israel will turn away from me as their God and embrace another God, and I'll crush their God in the valley of Jezreel. In other words, Israel will be judged at the place where she sinned. And that moment will be both poetic justice and divine justice. You might say, well, that doesn't sound like judgment. That sounds like a gift. It is. But it's also heavy-handed discipline, too. 
See, the language here is a callback to a time of treachery and brutality. It was a time when the, uh, uh, Jehu, a former king of Israel, unleashed his fury on the people of Israel, killed 70-something people in the city of Jezreel. Even though Jehu was carrying out the punishment on God's command, he was still very heavy-handed in his judgments. The prophecy is simple. Israel has sinned and strict punishment is deserved. That's the name of the baby. Israel has sinned and strict punishment is deserved. Then Gomer has another baby in verse 6. But notice the language. It doesn't say that was Hosea's baby. So now Hosea is asked to take care of kids that ain't his. I wish I had time to go down there, but I don't. God tells Hosea to name the daughter No Mercy. So the prophecy reads, Israel has sinned, a strict punishment is deserved, no mercy. Then Gomer has another child in verse 8, and God makes it even more explicit, name the child, not my people. It's abundantly clear now, this ain't Hosea's kid. But it's also showing that God's pity on Israel has an expiration date. It will come to an end. And he will cast off Israel as his people. In other words, there is a point of no return in the unfaithfulness of a bride. God says, you are no longer my people, and he disowns Israel. So the prophecy reads, Israel has sinned, a strict punishment is deserved, no mercy, and no longer my people. I need you to see this, friends. There will be a day when pity is replaced by wrath for the people who are no longer part of the family of God or no part of, no, not at all family with God. I don't know your story. I don't know what you got going on, but I can tell you this. You don't want to stand before God as a judge when you can stand before him as his bride, his love, the apple of his eye and the object of his affection. That's the call before you this morning. You have a faithful God waiting to be yours holy and truly. You have a faithful friend ready to ease every burden and wipe every tear. You have a faithful lover who brings the sun out for you every day to remind you that he's covering you. You got a faithful counselor to help you navigate every season of life. You have a faithful hero who will always rescue you from the deathly valleys of the enemy. I'm just saying, no spouse is perfect, but God is. The truth of the matter, church, is you will not be able to match his faithfulness towards you. You will repeatedly try and turn away from him. Hosea chapter 1 teaches us that like Hosea, God is a wronged husband. Gomer, like Israel, like us, are an unfaithful bride who has committed spiritual adultery by worshiping false gods. And Hosea, like God, is calling Gomer, like Israel, like us, to recognize what we have done and return to him. And yet, even though God declares his judgment on a habitually offending Israel, 
that same day, he doesn't let judgment have the final word. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people and I'm not your God. That's the judgment. But this is how he finishes. He says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Don't miss this, family. This is a word for you this morning. Swap Israel with yourself. God is saying our exhaustive unfaithfulness, every way we live unfaithful as a bride, does not equal an exhausted God. Stay with me here. God is telling Hosea, Israel is going to think they divorced me by trying to link arms with another God. But God will not turn his gaze from them for too long. He will pursue them and he will crush their God. Great shall be the day of Jezreel. There will be a day when not my people become children of the living God. Oh, what you need to know this morning is that every day your heart works to create new idols works to create new ways to worship anything but God. But God will not let that stand. You could run away. You could put this marriage off. You, but you will be outran. You will be outpaced. God will break down every false idol and bring you to the end of yourself where all those false treasures, all those things you put your trust in other than him will crumble and he will remain faithful in your life. I wish I had someone who knows what I'm talking about so you could help your neighbor. You've been unfaithful. You've ran as far away as you could go. But no matter how hard you tried, God was always there. Faithful and sure, holy and just, good and nothing but. Chapter 2 begins with Hosea speaking of Gomer pleading for her repentance. These words are also a pleading with Israel for her repentance towards God, to turn away from their lifestyle and to come back home, for Israel to return to her husband. See, Gomer, she essentially tried to divorce Hosea in lifestyle. She has left the home, abandoned the children, For a second there, Hosea thought the children were the images of Israel because the firstborn, Jezreel, became a violent and wayward child. And then the other two were bastards. They weren't his. But now Hosea is understanding, oh, no, Israel is Gomer. He's beginning to make the connection between his heartbreak and God's. The more Hosea pursues Gomer, she becomes more aggressive in her abandonment of the home. She says in verse 5, I will go to my other lovers. They feed me, dress me in the most expensive garments. They lavish me with jewelry. 
Again, family, swap Gomer with yourselves. Some of you are putting your trust in that which gives you wealth. Some of you have abandoned God for materialism and self-glorification. Some of you have put your trust in something that gives you the illusion of safety, something that gives you the illusion of security, something that gives you the illusion of self-satisfaction. And so the good things God gives us to enjoy, you made your idols or as instruments of your idol worship. Look at what God says in response to Gomer. Verse 8, God says, she did not know. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil. It was I who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. All that she gets from her true husband, she uses to worship her false god. Church, this is our rebuke. This is our rebuke. This is our condemnation. We've taken the good things God gives to us, loves us with, and we've perverted them and made them our idols. Or we've made them as instruments to sing songs to our idols with. Take a second to think through this. A lot of y'all are note takers. Pull out your phone if you have to. Write this down. Where do you see this as true in your life? And, 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 And write the thing that right now you're too scared to write. Write the thing that your heart will not let you get to because you want to protect it. That's not true of me. No, that's the thing. What good things of God that he's given you to show you he loves you. Have you distorted and perverted as an instrument of worshiping your idolatry? See, when God is treated as less a husband, less than a husband, he'll show you that he's absolutely more than that. And that brings me to our third observation, God's unyielding pursuit. See, verse 14 through 23 of chapter 2 is a love song to you to sing that he sings to his rebellious wife Israel. He sings this song telling us what he's going to do to get us back. There's three things in here I want to highlight. The first is that he's going to woo us tenderly. In the midst of our repeated unfaithfulness, he promises to take us into the wilderness and solitude. He wants to remove us from all distraction, all the things we put in his way, to take us away from the crowds, away from it all, away from the noise, so that he can, the Hebrew says here, speak to our hearts. He will speak to us in such a way that we will be a Lord. We will be enticed by him. I'm not romanticizing the text. It's right there for you to read. God wants to take you somewhere quiet, somewhere alone. 
and woo you tenderly, entice you back into his embrace. I want to challenge you here. Take some time this week to sit in solitude. Put out from the room all distractions, the phone, the remotes, the, the baby monitor, the noise, every, the music, all of it. Put it all away. Sit in silence with God and let him speak to your heart. Let him woo you. I mean, you might find, you might find, oh, nothing's happening. I've done that. It was awkward. You might find the silence is just silence. But if I can encourage you to go deeper than that. Be gentle with your soul. Know that he still wants to woo you in that hour, even though you're unfaithful, even though you're unclean, even though you messed up, even though you may feel like you're the worst, God still wants to whisper to you. He still wants intimacy with you. He, he, he's not a spiteful spout. He, he knows what he signed up for with you. He, he's not going to let your past ruin your intimacy today. Somebody married knows what I'm talking about. I'm just saying this in the text. Second thing, God promises hope and safety. He mentions the first time Israel was unfaithful to God in the promised land. And he says that he will change the place from valley of trouble to door of hope. I need you, I need you to dial in on this. In other words, he promises that if you come to him, he'll rewrite your story. Listen to me. When we come to God in repentance, when we come to God in our trouble, when we come to God in our sin, he takes the broken past and rewrites the story to tell of his faithfulness. So now when we feel prone to remember our unfaithfulness, when we feel prone to fall into the depths of discouragement because how we failed in the past, God makes those moments testimonies. He gives you not a record of failure, but a record of his love, a record of how many times he's been there for you. So when, when the enemy comes and says, remember you did this, you can shout back, I don't remember when I failed. I remember when God delivered. When, 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 when the enemy comes, when your critics come and say, oh no, remember you did this, you can say, I remember when God did this instead. You're, you're not with me still. I got to help you out. When Satan says, you remember when you ate the fruit. You can say, I remember when God killed the animal and clothed me in my nakedness. When, when Satan says, do you remember the flood? You can say, I remember the ark. When, when you remember the knife to Isaac, you can say, I remember the lamb that was provided in his place. When he says, you remember the rod of Egypt, you can say, I remember the parting sea. You remember all those enemies seeking your destruction. I remember the judges who offered us protection. You remember Delilah? I remember the crushed Philistines. You remember Remember Goliath? I remember the slings. Can I keep going? You got to know your Bible to be happy about this. You said, you remember all the injustice and corruption? I remember the words of 
Amos. You remember drowning in the ocean? I remember the fish. You remember 400 years of silence? I remember the voice crying in the wilderness. You remember Judas? I remember the cross. You remember Rome? I remember the church. You remember the pains of this world? I remember the new Jerusalem is coming to take me home. You're not with me today. When God comes, when you come to God, he rewrites your story. There is no unfaithfulness on your part that grace cannot cover. You got a file, a text in the word and in your life that at all times God has taken you and redeemed you when you messed up. You could see it historically in the word and you can testify with your own life. God takes your mess up as testimonies for his glory. The third thing God wants to do is give you another chance. We can't exhaust him. God says, after I wooed you, after I give you hope and protection, I want you to come back home for good. I want to give you righteousness in exchange for your unrighteousness. Justice in exchange for injustice, love for your indifference, mercy for your wrongdoings. I want you to be faithful to me. Isn't, isn't, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? That God would do that for you. Here comes the bad news. You can't. We can't. We could try, but on our own, we can't. Go to our text back in chapter 3. I want to close with this. After the song is sung, This beautiful love song. Where do we find Gomer? In the arms of another man. But this time, her addiction has taken her beyond promiscuity. It has driven her to the point of being pimped. She's someone else's property to be used like a thing without dignity, an object of sin. She has to perform on command to the next man who could afford to rent her. I know it's ugly, but this imagery shows us the depths of our own sin. I told you before, you're not above Gomer. She's not someone to look down upon. She's you. And she's me, left to the devices of our sin. And God tells Hosea, go again and love her. God tells Hosea, the same way I love you, when you're in the pit of sin, the same way I, I want you to love Gomer. Hosea, Hosea could have broke it off. Think about this. He could have broke it off. He could have he moved on. She was out of the house for years. Try and try and try as he might. She never came back. 
He could have legally had her stoned. Could have had her killed. He could have been gone, remarried, or just stay in singleness. No. He's told, go back. Love her again. No matter what it takes, Hosea, get her back. Spare no expense. Commentators believe that Hosea didn't have enough money for her. It says he bought her with 15 shekels. A slave cost 30. He didn't have enough money to get her. So he had to supplement. He had to supplement his his wealth with something of substance, in this case, barley. The idea here is that Hosea spared no expense to get his bride back. And Hosea goes, and he doesn't pay to borrow her. He purchases her completely and wholly. He bought back what was already his. You asleep. You want to watch football. I need you to understand something. Hosea is a prophet. He is, by all cultural standing, a spotless citizen. He's the mouthpiece of God, the keeper of his word. Hosea is above reproach. He's, he's He's spotless before the people. And he has to go to the not so nice part of town, to the place where he doesn't really fit neatly in. And he's got to go where the world would love to see a man of God be so that they could find fault with him. If you saw your pastor sitting in a place where he shouldn't be, I know you're not going to sit there and be like, oh, well, he must be doing good ministry. Look at him. (laughs) No. You'd be skeptical. You would say, "What what, what is a man of God doing here? You would find fault in him. And this is where Hosea goes, to the depths of human depravity, not to participate, but to elevate. He goes to the darkest alleys to bring his wife back into the light. He's going to purchase her, sin scorched, hell kissed, used and abused, and he's going to give everything to bring her back home. Our family, how many of you would do this for your spouse? How many of you would go to the gutter to get her back? How many of you would put up with that much? None of you. That's my point. You couldn't even if you wanted to. Something outside of you got to compel you to love someone else like you've been loved. See, you and I, we were Gomer, caught deep in the depths of our depravity. You and I, we, we, we were the worst of sinners, the, the, the chief of trespassers. You, you, you were the prostitute and the perverted. We, 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 were, we were the slops of our sinfulness. And God sent somebody better than Hosea to go and get you out. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, the second seed of the Trinity, to walk down into the city's depths, 
humiliated and pained. And he took your punishment, the death you deserve for your penalty of infidelity. You were a slave, pimped out by sin, a servant to a wicked master. And Jesus Christ spared no expense to save you. He gave up his life to bring you home. And he gave it all so you could return and see God as your husband, as your king, as your doctor, as your shepherd, as your deliverer, as your counselor, and as your friend. And he sings you a love song to prevent you from ever going astray again, reminding you that home is where you belong, that he gives you safety and hope for eternity, and that he will always be more enchanting than the most enticing of sins because he's never yielded for you. Taking on your sin wasn't too much for him. He's never been crushed. Taking on your death didn't defeat him. I know this is hard to understand. God help us get it. But our exhaustive unfaithfulness is not enough to exhaust his redeeming love. So now you can enter your marriages today. Now you can enter your marriages today knowing that it is like a mirror and you get to love your spouse like Hosea, love your bride like Christ. And the next time you fall into sin, you can find the hands that catch you, reminding you of that old great hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life back up from the dead. You can stand with me and worship.